0: Multifactorial Inheritance by Dr. Bruce Korff, in collaboration with the University of Alabama at Birmingham.
1: My name is Bruce Korff. I'm a medical geneticist at University of Alabama at Birmingham. This talk will focus on the principles of multifactorial inheritance. We'll look at the evidence that supports a multifactorial mode of inheritance, some of the models that explain multifactorial inheritance, and then talk about what is known about the genetics of common disorders. The paradigm that underlies the integration of genetics in medical practice is that we're all born with a genetic liability, sometimes overwhelmingly so causing a genetic disorder like sickle cell anemia, but most of the time much more subtle. And it requires the passage of time and exposure to environmental factors in order to transition from what might be described as a pre-symptomatic state, ultimately to a disease state. The hope is that if we could identify the genes that contribute to this liability, we might be able to help avoid the exposure to environmental factors and reduce the likelihood of transition to disease or, if that transition should occur, understand better how and why disease has occurred and perhaps have better approaches to treatment. The evidence that multifactorial inheritance is occurring is that a trait has a tendency to recur within families more frequently than might be expected due to chance, but on the other hand, does not follow the principles of Mendelian genetics, for example, a 50% recurrence risk for a dominant or a 25% risk of having affected children if both parents are carriers for a recessive. Multifactorial, as the name implies, involves a combination of the action of multiple genes interacting with one another and or with environmental factors. In most cases, the specific genes that underlie multifactorial traits are not known, and genetic counseling for multifactorial traits is based on empirical data. These are fairly typical data for congenital anomalies that are attributed to multifactorial inheritance where you see a recurrence risk in a first-degree relative, that is to say, where a parent or sibling is affected, is in the range of 3%. And you'll note that the risk dilutes very quickly as one goes to more distant relatives. What kind of evidence would support multifactorial inheritance? One would consist of identification of familial clustering. Geneticists use the variable lambda to indicate the risk of relatives affected with a trait compared with the population risk. Lambda sub r is the generic case where relatives of type r are compared with the population risk. Lambda sub s is a commonly used variable in which we're looking at the ratio of the risk in SIBS compared with the population risk. In the case of cystic fibrosis, which is of course an autosomal recessive trait, the risk in SIBS if both parents are carriers, that is if a child has already been born with CF, would be 0.25 or 1 in 4. The risk in the population at least of northern European descent is 0.0004 and hence lambda sub s is a very high number. For Huntington disease, an autosomal dominant, the risk in sibs of course is 0.5. The risk in the population is about 0.0001 so lambda sub s is about 5,000. The table shows several examples of congenital anomalies or other multifactorial traits, where you see that the lambda sub s is in the tens, as low as 16, as high as 49. Nowhere near as high as the autosomal recessive or autosomal dominant examples that we've shown. But of course, the risk would be one if the risk is the same in sibs as in the general population, which it isn't for these disorders. Another form of evidence that would support multifactorial inheritance involves comparison of the rate of concordance of a trait in monozygotic twins as compared with full sibs. About 70% of twins are dizygotic, coming from two separate fertilization events, and 30% are monozygotic. The monozygotic twins, of course, are genetically identical. Sometimes, but not always, one can tell the difference based on the various fetal membranes. The table at the right shows percent concordance either in monozygotic twins or SIBs for a variety of disorders. you note two things. One, that the concordance rate for twins is in all cases higher than it is for SIBs. And second, in no case is it 100%. Therefore, these traits are not completely determined genetically, because if they were, monozygotic twins should have 100% concordance but on the other hand, the substantial increase in rate of concordance in monozygotic twins compared to SIBs supports that there is a genetic component to these conditions. Another approach, which is confined to measurable traits like height or blood pressure, is the measurement of heritability. This is a statistical concept in which the variance in the phenotype of a trait, which is V sub p, is partitioned into genetic variance, which itself consists of additive genetic variants, how particular genetic traits add to one another, and then deviation of additivity due to dominance and epistasis. Environmental variance is partitioned into strict environmental variance and interaction between environmental factors. Then there's a covariance of genes in the environment and the measurement variance. Heritability in the narrow sense is defined as the ratio of additive genetic variants to phenotypic variants. Heritability in the broad sense would be the ratio of all genetic variants to phenotypic variants, and it's the latter that more typically is used in human genetics. One can measure the degree of correlation of a quantitative trait in various individuals with specific degrees of relationship. For monozygotic twins, the correlation would be a direct measurement of heritability. For either comparison of two sibs or dizygotic twins, heritability is twice the correlation coefficient because these sibs will share about half their genome. The same applies to comparing a parent and an offspring. Comparing a parent average between mother and father and an offspring is r over the square root of 0.5. Comparing first cousins is eight times R, and uncle-nephew, for example, would be four times R. Well, how does one conceptualize the various models for multifactorial inheritance? This example shows a simple model referred to as the additive polygenic model. We'll consider a quantitative trait locus, in this case for height, considering two hypothetical gene loci, A and B, with dominant and recessive alleles depicted as either big A or little a, big B or little b. We'll make the assumption that all individuals in the population would have a baseline height of 150 centimeters. And then depending on how many dominant alleles they have, and it doesn't matter if it's an A or a B, two additional centimeters of height are added. If we assume that the allele frequencies for big A and little A or big B and little B are each 50-50, then we can say that there'll be relatively few individuals who are homozygous, little A, little A, little B, little B, and they don't get any addition to their 150 centimeters and so will be the shortest individuals. To the far right in the diagram, there will be also relatively few, but some individuals who are homozygous dominant for both A and B, they'll get the largest boost to height of altogether 8 centimeters for having four dominant alleles. The most common will be having two dominant alleles. It could either be one A and one big B, could be two big B's or two little A's. Either way, 154 centimeters will be the height. And there'll be some individuals who either get a big A or a big B, and they'll be 152 centimeters, and some who get three dominant alleles, one big A and two big B's, or two big A's and one big B. Well, you can see how you get the semblance of a bell-shaped curve even in this simple model. So it is possible, especially as you add additional genes to the model, to get a pretty good semblance of a bell-shaped curve that would approximate the kind of data one might see in the field. Well, this works for a strictly quantitative trait, like height, for example. But what about a trait where it is essentially an all-or-nothing phenotype. A good example would be spina bifida, or cleft lip, for example, where there aren't degrees of spina bifida, but rather it either occurs or it doesn't occur. Now there can be differences in severity, but the fact that it occurs or not really is an all-or-none phenomenon. The threshold model has been formulated to account for this kind of situation. And what it posits is that there is a more or less bell-shaped curve of liability towards the trait in the population. Some individuals have very low liability, most somewhere in between. And then there are some individuals who have a very high liability. Now this liability can be accounted for by any combination of genetic and non-genetic factors. The model posits that there is a threshold and that if that threshold of liability, which would be contributed by both parents, to a particular child is exceeded, then the trait occurs. So in other words, the combined liability of mother and father, if it's to the left of this line, will not result, say, in spina bifida. But if it exceeds this threshold, then that trait will occur. Exactly how it occurs in any particular pregnancy does not need to be the same from one to another. It could be a very substantial environmental exposure, but relatively small amount of genetic liability, or it could be overwhelming genetic risk and relatively little environmental contribution. This model mixes genetic and environmental factors into one bin, which is referred to as liability, but it does explain how an all-or-none trait could result from a multifactorial inheritance model. Well, these are all theoretical models, but how do we get to the point of actually identifying the genes that are associated with the common disorders that might be of greatest interest in study of multifactorial inheritance, conditions like diabetes or hypertension or asthma? Well, for a long time, these have been elusive, but in recent years, substantial progress has been made, and it is based on the so-called common disease, common variant hypothesis which posits that common diseases are accounted for by genetic variants that are found in 1 to 5% of the population. Now, we don't necessarily have to identify the specific genes that are responsible for these liabilities to common disease. The phenomenon of linkage disequilibrium says that for two very closely linked markers, let's imagine the red one is really the marker associated with disease. If you have a closely linked marker, say the blue one, it may typically travel together with the red marker in the population and serve as a kind of surrogate marker for it because it is very closely linked with the actual gene in question. And why this is important is that one does not necessarily need to study genetic markers that in themselves are the ones that are accounting for risk of common disease. You can also study something very nearby and have it serve as a surrogate marker for the marker that you're actually looking for. The typical way that one searches for the association of a genetic marker, whether it's one nearby, the one that's responsible for disease, or the one responsible itself, is through an association study in a case control type study. And In recent years, it's become possible to identify genetic markers all along the genome called single nucleotide polymorphisms, typically abbreviated as SNPs, as it said. An example would be having an A or a C at this particular base in whatever genetic region this might be. And one expects to find a single nucleotide polymorphism in an individual roughly once in every thousand bases or so. Well, in this case, we can define having an A as allele one and a C as allele two here and then do a case control study. We hypothesize that allele 2 is associated with asthma. So we look at 100 people with asthma and 100 who do not have asthma, and we determine whether allele 2 is present or not present in individuals with asthma or without. We notice that 30% of those with asthma had allele 2, but only 10% of those who do not have asthma have allele 2 which would accord with our hypothesis. Well, many associations have been achieved for type 2 diabetes, based on this kind of approach, and for, indeed, many other disorders, as you'll see in a moment. In the early days, this was done by taking candidate genes, genes that were, for whatever reason, physiological evidence, for example, assumed to be associated with a particular trait, and one could determine through a case control study if they were or were not associated. This did show some success, but the problem with that approach was that one had to know in advance of which genes might be most likely to be associated, which usually that list was relatively small, and furthermore, in effect, you really weren't learning very much that you didn't already know. A Few years ago, though, as the cost of genotyping plummeted, it became possible to look at markers all along the genome. Initially spaced about a thousand bases apart, but ultimately it became clear that there are blocks of genetic information, maybe 10,000 or more bases in length, that tend to segregate together from generation to generation. And this reduced the amount of genotyping necessary. And all of this brought the task of doing so-called genome-wide association studies into the realm of affordability. This is a list of some of the various genes that have that have been found to be associated with type 2 diabetes. And indeed, for both this condition and many others, the list is getting longer and longer. This is a diagram maintained by the National Human Genome Research Institute showing examples of genome-wide associations. This was last updated in December of 2012, at least in this slide. The different colors correspond to different disorders and then they are mapped to regions of the chromosome where genetic association through case control studies has been identified. You can see that the gene map is very densely populated now and very large numbers of traits have been attributed to particular associations. One can use this kind of data now to estimate the odds ratio of disease. So in this case, and it's the same data set you saw just a few minutes ago, with um, 30% of individuals having allele two and asthma, and only 10% of non-asthmatics having allele two, we'll define the odds as the ratio of the probability that an event will happen over the probability that it will not happen, for example, that an allele carrier gets asthma or doesn't get asthma. So the odds of an allele carrier having asthma would be 30 over 40, which is 30 plus 10, compared with the odds of an allele carrier not having asthma, which is 10 over 40. And then the the odds of a non-carrier having asthma would be 70 over 70 plus 90, which is 160, compared with 90 over 160. And from that, you can calculate an odds ratio, which is simply the ratio of 3 over 0.77, in this example, giving you an odds ratio of 3.86 if one identifies um, the presence of having allele 2. One needs to be very careful in interpreting these odds ratios. Imagine that you have a marker that is associated with a 52% increase in odds of disease. So this would correspond to a 1.52 increase in odds of disease. And here we show hypothetical numbers of the frequency of disease in individuals who have the trait in question compared to the population. A 3.5 per thousand risk over a population risk of 2.3 per thousand would account for a 52% increase in odds. If you say it as 52% increase in odds, it sounds pretty impressive. If you say that your risk has changed from 2.3 per thousand to 3.5 per thousand, I think for most people that does not sound terribly impressive and therefore one needs to be very careful in how one expresses the data and how one interprets it. Well the hope has been that one could use GWAS data as a basis for predicting risk of common disorders. But one of the problems has been that a relatively small proportion of estimated heritability is accounted for by the so far discovered examples of association. So in these five different examples, type 2 diabetes, Crohn's disease, lupus, height, and early myocardial infarction. The blue sector is the proportion of heritability that is accounted for by GWAS studies done so far. The green sector is the so-called missing heritability. So you need to realize that all of the work done so far is only chipping away at a relatively small proportion of the heritability that has been estimated from things like familial clustering analyses, or twin studies, or analysis of variants. What accounts for that? Well, various things could. There may be non-SNP genetic variants, like copy number changes, that are not being included in the studies. It could be that the common variant common disease hypothesis does not apply in all cases, and that some of the genetic risk factors actually are very rare and would be hard to detect in the case control studies that have been done so far. And Finally, it's possible that the actual heritability estimates themselves may have been overestimated. In conclusion, multifactorial inheritance involves effects of multiple genes interacting with one another and with the environment. Recurrence risk counseling for most multifactorial traits is based on empirical data. Genome-wide association studies are revealing genetic factors that contribute to risk of common disorders, and prediction of risk of common disorders can be challenging since most genetic markers account for only a small contribution of heritability.
0: This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide.